Welcome to the Golf Week Radio Podcast. This is Thomas Dunn. You know, sometimes we have genuinely good fortune on our Raider retreats, and that was certainly the case in June of 2020, when I hosted a group at Arcadia Bluffs in Western Michigan. By chance, Dana Fry, the architect of the resort's recently opened South Course, happened to be visiting the property himself on a mini vacation with his teenage stepson, Noah. This interview was recorded in front of a live audience on the patio at Arcadia Bluffs, with the sun setting over Lake Michigan. Dana talks about the homage to Charles Blair McDonald and Seth Rayner that he created at the South Course at Arcadia Bluffs. He talks about working in Asia and so much more. Enjoy. Welcome, Dana. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's I love when uh, when a plan comes together and when you have a little bit of luck. You know, we'd planned this trip for a while. This is the first uh, first Raider retreat in the kind of coronavirus era. I guess you could say, you know, we've been grounded for a while. It's been a couple months since we've done one of these. Um, So I wanted to, uh, first of all, thank all the Raiders. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, It's really appreciated. Um, And uh, we were lucky to to cross paths with with Dana, who happened to be staying here with his stepson. Um, You guys have been playing a little golf uh, over the past uh, several days. And... Uh, having sat with Noah at dinner tonight, and uh, just uh, what a what a nice young guy he is, um, I thought I would move one of my later questions to the beginning and just uh, ask you about um, you know some of the uh, some of the some of the golf that you've played together over the past week. You've, you guys have played some great courses, and uh, what what is what has come of that? Well, it's, the trip started for us because um, Noah is a very good player. He's 15 years old and uh, has aspirations of playing collegiate golf and then professional golf. That's his dream right now. And um, our, the clubs that he plays at in Naples, the Calusa Pines and Naples National, both shut down May the 26th. So we took a trip. We left that day. And uh, so he could play in practice at a club I'm doing in New Jersey where they keep 18 holes open. Uh, it's called the Union League, Union League National. It used to be called Sand Barrens. But while we were there, we played at Pine Valley uh, Philadelphia Cricket Club, and he got to—he didn't play at Aronimic, but he spent the the whole afternoon out at the club with a, a gentleman by the name of Jay Siegel, who's a nine-time Walker Cup player, won back-to-back U.S. Amateurs, three mid-amateurs, a British amateur, one of the most decorated decorated amateurs of all time, and it was more about just uh, a mental talk of how what Noah will have to do if he wants to take it to the next level yeah. from somebody that's done it. Yeah. So the whole trip has been built around golf. And then we came over here to basically to play the Kings of club with Mike DeVries, which was a great thrill because he's a, he's a good friend and it's the first time I'd ever played golf there. And then we um, have been playing at Arcadia Bluffs the last three days. Great. And um, well, so you've, I'm sure played Pine Valley many times in the a past. Bunch, yeah. Yeah, um, that's the type of golf course that I've been fortunate to play many times over the years. And, um, you know, I was wondering uh, from your last round if you picked up any details or any, you know, any features from that golf course. It's one of those things that you see something different every time out. And yeah, we, the, the course I'm doing in New Jersey is it's, it's located about an hour away from Pine Valley. And it's actually in the same region, which is called the Pine Barrens region sure. of New Jersey. And by the permits that we uh, we we uh, we 
agreed upon with the authorities, we are actually planting the same 13 types of plants in ornamental grasses and shrubs that Pine Valley has. So the bunkering long term, three to five years down the road, should look extremely similar to Pine Valley in nature as it matures. You know, Pine Valley, if you look at the old pictures, a lot of the holes were pretty much on open land. Some were in trees, but some were on open land. And if you know what it's like today, that you can see how it evolved. Here we're trying to speed the process up by planting a lot more of mature vegetation as well. But that is the goal to have that look. So those, so are, those I, are native so plants. Yeah. Exactly. And what we did is we took the whole construction crew over to Pine Valley three or four occasions. The shapers, um, some of the, the laborers that are doing the bunker work for us, uh, the superintendents, the assistant superintendents, the construction managers, and the project manager to tour the grounds. And it was basically to tour the native areas, not so much to look at the golf courses. It was just looking at how they've done their native areas yeah. to try to, so we could try to recreate that similar look yeah. as we go along. Yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating thing that I think um, uh, a lot of golfers don't quite pick up on that you see, um, you know, how, how architects treat marginal areas, native areas, um, the way that a course does or does not blend into the surrounding landscape. I mean, a place like um, what Gil just did at a Hoopy Match Club, mm-hmm. um, just bleeding it in, or Curran Crenshaw Bandon Trails is another example of just, um, you know, the detail work that goes into it. And so, so this is something that, so I know you, you know, you sent me some photos from the Union League property, and I remember you, you were, we were texting and you described it as, as one of the biggest projects in terms of scale of your career so far. What, what, has, made it, what has made that particular project uh, well, just the, so big? Well, that particular site, it did, when they bought the property, it was an old golf course I had done back in the late 90s called Sand Barrens. And we built a golf course for about $3.4 million, 27 holes in the late 90s. We're spending about $22, 23000000 million today. Wow. And so it's calling it a renovation would not even be accurate because it is a, you know, it's it's a mass transformation. The, the concept there came up because I had a member of the Union League when we met at the downtown. At the, the, the Union League, people don't know, Philadelphia is the largest city club in the world, has 3,500 members. And they bought this, this golf course out on the shore because all the members have summer homes in Avalon and Stone Harbor. And they wanted a place... To play golf sure. so that's how it came about I with the board of directors and uh, the general manager of the Union League I tried to talk them into doing a Calusa Pines type concept with 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 a mass fill in the center of the property and then so the whole board of directors went down to the club they liked what they saw so I had them talked into it so then it was to speak to the entire membership so we spoke to the membership and, and told them what we were planning on doing. And then when they had the questions after, the first, I think one of the very first questions asked was, I, a guy said, I just don't understand why a big fill. And, and my response was, at what, are the best, what are the best golf courses on the Jersey Shore? You know, you got Hidden Creek, you got Atlantic City Country Club and Galloway. And then I think it's a, in southern half of the state, yes. it's a very dramatic drop off after that. Right. And I think, and I've been to all three of those, played all three of them, and I think all three of those are really good golf courses, really good on their own merits. But what I what I said 
if you're not a member at those places, can you remember any hole specifically? If you played there five years ago, can you remember a hole? Yeah. And every, nobody said they could remember a hole. And I said, you know, I, to, to create something that usually, in most cases, and Bob would just start pointing out exceptions, but in most cases, what makes the golf so dramatic in many instances is a setting it is with, it, that the golf course sits in. And to me, it's a very interesting dichotomy because when you start looking at the polar differences of where I trained, which was with Tom Fazio, was what Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw and Gil Hance and Tom Doak and others do, Mike DeVries, of doing more minimalistic stuff, Tom really got focused on if he didn't have an environment, you create an environment. Yes. And I, for, you know, I, my two favorite architects are Corin Crenshaw and Tom Doak. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, Corin Crenshaw and, excuse me, Tom Fazio, mm-hmm. which are polar opposite styles. Sure. And, and I just look at it more on individual sites is what do I like? And I, what I wanted to do down there was create a setting that it didn't have. I like the low-profile golf of Hidden Creek in Atlantic City Country Club a lot. But is it the is it a really something that you're going to want to go back and play over and over and over again because it really just grabs you? So the uh, so you so now you create this place that has has on a flat site, it has over 65 feet of grade change, literally 65 feet of grade change on a flat site. So now you have tee shots that are hitting downhill 30 and 40 feet on 10 different holes. You have golf holes playing uphill 20 and 30 feet, and uh, in greens complexes, you know, nine different greens complexes in these fills as, as, as well. So the settings are very dramatic and very memorable. Now, my next statement, if no, if they have, if, if I don't know how many people here have seen Calusa Pines, but if you've seen Calusa Pines, I think one of the common things that you hear is people, I think everybody that rates golf courses certainly would understand that it is a man-made, completely man-made but it does look natural. Yeah. And the reason it looks natural is because it was re-vegged with the exact same vegetation that was there before. So you took wherever the forest didn't tie into the big fill, you brought that vegetation back up the fill, you give it some time, and it looks natural. And that's the same thing we're doing down there. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, Calusa is notable for the Great Calusa Mound, I guess. That, I don't know if that's what they actually call it, but... Uh, you create, you constructed this very large mound, and in, in the not, it, it, not it goes, in the it, it goes up from like elevation twelve, thirteen. The yeah. site sat on to elevation of fifty nine at Calusa. Yeah, and you used it for tees, green. You, you 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 approach it, and then you vault off it at several different points in the round. And it's so very, it seems like it's even bigger than it is because you keep coming back to and from it. Yeah. Was there something like that? Is, is is that? Did you learn something from the success of how that strategy panned out for well, Union? Well, like, again, I could never have done that if I wouldn't have. My, my background is I worked for Tom Fazio out of college for five years, and I shaped. I, was, I ran a bulldozer just like Gil Hansen, Tom Doak do, or and have done their a lot of their careers. You know, and I shape places called like Wade Hampton and Lake Known and Barton Creek and, yeah. and uh, you know, some of really of Tom's best early work. So I was 
and then I was taught by a guy named Andy Banfield how to move dirt. And he's the guy that made Tom Fad. Probably, I don't even know how many people in this room know who Mike Strantz even is. Yeah. Or, or, or Andy Banfield. And then Mike Strantz taught me how to run a bulldozer because he was a shaper for Fazio. So I learned from those two guys how to move the dirt and how to create the shapes. And so that was where my whole background came from. Yeah. Well, I knew that you had cut your teeth with, with Tom Fazio. I, I did not I did not know that you were uh, acquaintances or friends with Mike Strantz. Um, what what well, do you, you know? The, and, just because that's a real uh, sensitive subject with me because, you yeah. know, I, not, Mike, when Mike was really sick towards the end of his life, he asked to see two people, and the two people he asked to see was, was uh, Andy Banfield and myself. Mm. And uh, what he said, I'll remember the rest of my life, because he couldn't even speak at that time, and he had to write on a tap, and he had to write because he couldn't say it. And it was an incredibly emotional thing, but he was, yeah, he was one of the big influences in my career. Yeah. What is it about his work that is so special to you? I mean, I know golfers who who play his courses, you know, respond in really powerful ways. Um, Tobacco Road, True Blue, Caledonia. He was willing to try and do different things on different jobs. And, you know, now you just get into personal preference, but I, I sort of like that, that that was one of the things I really liked about Mike and I wish other architects would try more of. You know, there is there is nobody here that likes Corin Crenshaw's work more than I do. It's, it's impossible because I think they are going to go down as maybe the greatest architectural duo ever in, in, in the industry. But when you still look at their body of work and, and, and uh, Tom Dokes or Gil Hans, what I would like to see is where they would try more deviating from a sort of an overall look that they have to try something different. But it's really hard for people to do. Yeah. And Mike Strands would do that, and he right. did it regularly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, it's it's taking risks. So I mean, you're you're a veteran in the game mm-hmm. at this point. Are there are there risks that you, that you see yourself taking in your current projects? Whether it be we can talk about Union League or about Arcadia Bluff South or about projects that you have coming in the well, future what what are the types of risks that that sort of ex- well i think we've been you know even with, when i was with mike i think we did it a lot if you i mean i don't know how many people have played the, the courses i've done bob certainly has been to a lot of them i know the first firsthand but uh you know when you look at like what we did at the devil's pulpit and the devil's paintbrush they're a few miles away and they literally look nothing there's no way they look anything like each other and you look at what i did at, at the south course and uh, that was unlike anything I'd ever attempted in my life. And I, 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 I was telling some people tonight, I was so unsure of myself when we were doing that, that I'd been to Chicago Golf Club many times before and played it three or four times through the years and been there a couple other times. But when we started construction, I went there 13 times during construction. And again, I reiterate, we did, were not trying to copy golf holes, but we were trying to recreate the look of the golf course, the shapes, like with the, with the lines, the way they did the bunkering, the angles, and spent in many cases, in all 18 of them, the greens dramatically slightly softer than Chicago golf and just slightly bigger. Chicago golf screens are 8,200 square feet. At the south course, they're 9,300 square feet. 
And, you know, their greens, I, was, I have the green scans of all 18 greens. The superintendent gave them to me early on in the construction. And you can see some of these greens, like the fourth green there at Chicago Golf, the par five, uh, probably 80, 75 to 80% of the green is not tenable on an 8,000 square foot green. I mean, it's, it's just slopes and false, false fronts, false sides and contours in, internally. And, you know, most clients would never give you the chance to do something like that. Down there we could do it because they're all push-up greens. There's no drainage in the greens. And we could, the only, so the cost to build them was nothing. Very minimal other than putting in irrigation. It's the cost of maintenance, long-term maintenance. But he really wanted to have, we both agreed on that Chicago Golf Club look. So that was a, was, so it was a, was it partly a response to the site as well as being a, a kind of a quiet? Well, we played today out there, and I was telling Bob, the when you go to the third hole, there's a hill on the left side of the fairway at the second, just past the second landing area, and that is the high point of the property. And they drove me to that specific point, and it was in tree. When you get out there, it was 60, 50 to 60 percent treed, but secondary growth and an ap- old apple orchard that was sort of in disrepair. So the trees were not of high caliber. There's now on 313 acres, there's exactly two trees left on the interior of the property. So, but when we were up on that hill, I said, you know, Bob, uh, to the owner, Rich Postman, if we clear that entire site, we could really create a Chicago golf club look. Mm-hmm. And, and I asked him, have you ever been there? And he said, yes. And I said, what, what do you think of it? And he said, I love it. And I said, I do too. And he just said, let's do it. And it, that's, I mean, he really wanted to do it as much as we could so it had that look and feel yeah the the visual vocabulary in terms of design that you use it at the south and i I haven't played it yet but i have toured it um you know it's it is remarkable how it it does bring chicago to mind what in terms of the now i haven't gotten the chance to play the holes yet and most of these raiders haven't either um and and a lot of us won't get to play. I mean, Chicago Golf Club is a very exclusive club. It's it's not the easiest place to play, um, and certainly a lot of Arcadia Bluffs clientele are not necessarily going to get to play Chicago Golf Club. So, how, in terms of the the DNA of playing the golf holes at Arcadia South, what kind of echoes of Chicago do you see, and you know, in, in well, what you built there? Well, you're going to have huge fairways. But in many cases, depending on where the pins are, you're better off on one side of the fairway or the other to attack where the pin is because the greens are so large. In some cases, you have to be on one side and you can hit it and run it down the right side and then let it feed and catch a slope and end up, it can literally roll 100 feet on the green. That's how big the greens, the first green's 150 feet deep and you know it's about 12,000 square feet and if the pin's in the back left, unless you're like my stepson who can hit a driver and then hit a wedge and fly it into the back left end most people that are mid you know eight handicaps and above are all going to be hitting it in the middle of the green and letting it if they hit a good shot and let it just funnel down the slopes and you'll find that on every hole there's multitudes of options as the way to hit into the greens here and the shots around the greens depending on where the flags are because if you start short siding yourself to certain pins you'll be lucky to get it within 30, 40 feet of the pen. And it's the same way at Chicago. I defy anybody that hits it right on the fourth green at Chicago Golf when they put the pin on the right side to try to get it close. It's 
virtually impossible. And that is the defense of that golf course today because by today's standards, it's, it's shorter. But the defense, and it still can test the better players and everyday golfers because of the severity of the greens itself. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you know, I, I did notice uh, in certain places, um, almost also along with Chicago, echoes of pre-Golden Age architecture uh, early 20th century stuff, like cross bunkers that cross directly, per- you know, not on the diagonal, but directly perpendicular steeple chase stuff that you would have seen uh, in the early 1900s. Were there other courses that you were drawing? No, it, uh, it mainly was. No, I, I've been to most, you know, m- m- almost virtually all the McDonald Rainer courses in the U.S. at one time or another. Some of them have been 20 or 30 years. And now I've been to Chicago Golf Club more than any of them because I so but so Chicago Golf Club really was the inspiration. We made the choice not to copy. You know they did template holes. We yeah. obviously did not do template holes, with an exception. The owner Rich Postma. Uh, I had roughed in the twelfth green, which is a par three, and Rich decided he wanted to do a lion's mouth, and there is a lion's mouth green there now, which they do not have at Chicago Golf. They have it. Like the Country Club at Charleston and others, but right. it is a true lion's mouth green with the you know with the bunker in the center and the false front on both sides and the way it horseshoes around it. Also, a common Corin Crenshaw uh, design feature. You see a lot of lion's mouths. That's on, correct. On CNC courses. And, and the next hole is an interesting one because Ron, Ron Whitten, he coined it. He calls it a, a punch bowl barretz, which I I never thought of it that way, but it sort of does. When you get there, you'll see why he says that when you get to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, this season uh, has, I think it's it's been a, a really interesting golf season. It's just getting started, but there's been so much conversation in golf about kind of returning to first principles or essentials. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been seeing that in your travels with Noah? Do you, do you think that um, things like you know, walking, carrying your bag, using a push cart, whatever it is, um, you know, simple stripped-down experiences. Do you think that so obviously American golf has gotten very service-driven? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that some of these things might wind up sticking around, or do you think it's just a blip on the radar? I don't know. I hope they do because you know we, we when we went to Pine Valley, they said since this has all taken place, they they can't have a caddy. You can have a four caddy, and that just and they just started allowing guests very recently, and. But it was the first time that a member, anybody, everybody playing golf there has to carry their own bag now. That's never happened at Pine Valley in its history. It's always been a caddy carrying the bag. And, and now the, the members are saying, some of them are at least, that they sort of like it's, a, it's an entire different experience. And so it would be nice, the, the clubs I belong to down in, in Naples are predominantly walking clubs anyway, over 50%, 60% walking at Calusa and Naples National. Well, they've all became walking, and they have allowed pull carts for the first time on both clubs. Hmm. In Pine Valley, same way, people have pull carts now. I mean, it's, it's, so it's a different look. Do I think it's good? Yeah, it's more simplistic and back the way golf was meant to be. I, th- yeah. I think it's a benefit, I benefit, and I hope it would stay. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just I don't, I don't want to draw too bold a line under it, but it's disappointing when you – find tour pros on twitter you know tweeting about 
seeing pull carts out on the golf course and you know when people are playing they're getting around you know they're getting around they're they're finding their way into this kind of new era and you know to sort of be returning to these these old i think prejudices against push cart or pull cart mm-hmm. culture it just seems like golf is golf can be moving beyond that at this point but that's just my opinion. hope so again yeah. i hope some of it stays yeah. i just think of you know golf was meant you know, i grew up as a caddy and then you know playing golf on uh, municipal golf courses in kansas city yeah. and uh, carried a bag my whole life and you know i'm real it's, it's disappointing most kids don't grow up with the opportunity that like noah has unless they're at these private clubs where you know but you know when we play golf we're walking it's just the way it is right. you know so he's rare that he's getting that chance and yeah. i hope he always remembers it when he gets older because just growing up and playing in a riding a cart every round of your life is you're one of the greatest parts of the of, of our of the of golf is just the experience of being where you're at and when you're riding by a cart you're zooming by so fast you mess too much of it yeah you're, you're missing and your conversations the aren't as good when you get all four of your buddies and caddies and everybody's telling stories and it's just it's part of what makes golf what it is yeah agreed how has your design process changed over the course of your career or has it i should say i mean you know you uh working on a when it whether it comes to technology or um the the plans that you execute um how how has your thought process sort of evolved over the years well the biggest change that's happened in my career has been you know my early in my career it was obviously with tom fazio and and Andy Banfield and Mike Strantz and then with Dr. Hertzen is, you know, when I was working with Dr. Hertzen, we did a large, large, we did over 120 golf courses, I'm going to say, half of which I never even saw because I didn't set, I worked on more of the high profile jobs. And then I remember specifically, it was Bill Corr. He said, Dana, have you ever thought about just slowing down and doing one or two jobs at a time and really concentrating on them? And Honestly, it wasn't until the economic downturn in 2008 that you were about a necessity that happened. And, you know, and we pretty much kept it that way where we never have more than two or three jobs going at a time now. And, you know, with the South Course, I was here every single week during construction. I think I missed one week, and that was a week of the U.S. Open at Aaron Hills. Mm-hmm. It's the only week in this, the construction of that course I missed. And it's the same way in New Jersey. I'm, You know, I've been to that golf course since since covid started i've been there every single week for four days a week so i spend a lot of time on sites now even when i do the foreign stuff you know like my jobs in vietnam uh i have a job in one job in vietnam signed contract under my agreement i have to make 20 trips there during construction so i'll be going every three to four weeks to vietnam and staying a week at a time when i go so even if they're long distances, which, you know, because my thrill, my big thing that I like to do is build new golf courses. Right. Uh, and to do that, you're predominantly going to have to work overseas if that's what you want to do. And to do that, you're just going to have to either mail it in, which is not something I want to do because I want to build really, you know, God willing, I got 15 to 20, 25 years if I was extremely lucky because I'm going to do this as, as long, long as, as I can, can yeah. because, frankly, the two things in life I love doing other than my family is building golf courses and travel. Right. Well, it's a lot nicer when somebody's paying for your travel 
you know, and I've been to 120 countries, I've seen the world, and, you know, and that is the stuff that I want to do the rest of my career. What is the state of play in the Asian market right now? Um, you know, I know, uh, you know, China kind of turned the tables on some really significant golf courses. Um, well, I lived in Hong Kong for five years, from late in 08 through uh, December of 13. So I saw China when it was really going strong, and then when the new government came in place in 12, it started to really change. And then they, you know, put the moratorium out, and they they stopped the golf, and then they went and bulldozed a lot of. One of mine got bulldozed. I built six courses here. It got you know just plowed under. They basically would go and rip the irrigation out and plant trees, and that's how they destroyed them. Yeah. And uh, so it, so China is still not much is happening at all, but. Vietnam has taken over for years now, probably since that happened, has become the hot spot and has been for a decade now and still is. There's a lot of golf going on in Vietnam. The difference with Vietnam is that you, the projects are licensed before they ever start construction. They're legal from the central government. So golf is legal in Vietnam and it is done that way. And there is a permit process. And uh, when, once you have that, it's good to go. So Vietnam is clearly the hottest place in the world, has been for a while probably continue for several more years and then uh, other Asian countries there's always one or two or three new courses being built but nothing like what's going on in Vietnam Mm. Vietnam has a really impressive coastline a lot lot of really great sites that uh, I mean it's the the, you know it's only I think at its narrowest only 50 miles wide and it's it's just a long coastline it's like almost as long as the west coast of the United States yeah and they have you know several thousand miles of undeveloped coastline, so there's a lot of great sites in Vietnam. And you know, I would tell everybody to visit there. The, the hotels and the, the people are incredibly friendly, and it's very safe. Great. Well, to return to Arcadia Bluffs, um, you know, we're we're sitting watching the sunset over the the yep. first course, the Warren Henderson Rick Smith golf course. I'm going to give you a bit of trivia that there's nobody here that knows this. Rick Smith is an old friend of mine uh, from way back, and he uh, I met through the Fazio people when they were doing treetops, and he called me, and I'm going to get the years because I can't even remember, 25, 30 years ago, and he wanted me to come to work with him. This is when I had just started with Dr. Hertzen after a few years, and he wanted me to come to work with him to build this. He got hired to do a project uh, down at Wuskawan, down in uh, Holland, Michigan, and wanted to know if I would go to work with him on the job. And I said, I, I didn't want to leave Mike. He'd give me the chance and I'd become his partner. And, and I said, but there was a guy working for me. His name was Warren Henderson. He was working for Mike and I. At, uh, he oversaw a project we did in Vancouver, 36 holes we did in Vancouver back in, in Coquitlam uh, called Westwood Plateau. So I introduced Warren to Rick, and that's how that happened. Huh. And how how is how do you feel that the new course, the South Course? Um, I mean, it's a striking contrast between the two. How do you think that that works for the resort? Is it? Well, I think it's just you couldn't have two more polar opposite looks. Right. Right. Uh, obviously, what people think you know the the views of off, off from the clubhouse and on this golf course are you know it's almost like being at a, out at Pebble Beach in a way. It's just that spectacular of a visual setting, you know, and that's an inland site that doesn't have the dramatic contours or the whatever. But it's it's got the, I think in many cases the hardcore golf people like particularly this group, and there might be quite a few of them that prefer that 
I'd be surprised if it's not even most all of them would prefer the south course if they're in they're obviously into architecture I don't know you're right even no matter how much you're into it it's Chicago golf is one of the hardest tickets in all of golf it's sort of right there behind like Cypress and Augusta and you know Seminole I mean right. it's really hard to get on there's 150 members and you don't play without a member and that's just the end of the story so you got to know one of the 150 people yeah. so it's I just think the, the striking contrast is really unique. And that one, even though it's brand new, has a old feel to it. The only thing you're going to mess when you're there, which is a huge part of the experience, is, you know, there's 313 acres there and over two-thirds of the site is native grass. And when that grass in another three, four weeks goes that golden brown, mm-hmm. And between all those holes, there's huge, vast swaths of it. It really is a striking contrast. And it's because that's one of the things when it's all green, it just doesn't, it's not as visually impactive as it will be in a few more weeks. Great. Well, for the Raiders who are going to play the golf course, and I guess it's day after tomorrow, um, maybe some people will be checking it out tomorrow afternoon. Do you have any, any favorite details or features or little things about the golf course, just things that you? Or just particularly enamored of that you would hope for this group to, to well, keep an eye out for? For me, I, I, the collars and the greens are really something to look at out there. You'll see some of them that are just on slopes that are so steep, it's almost uh, defies logic. But that really is taken from the Chicago Golf Club. And there's not many golf clubs that you'll ever play that have, and, and there's so many of them. I mean, it's not like it's just one little place. It's on almost every hole to some extent some it's really dramatic uh when you get to the uh going into the uh, seventh hole i mean it's a green that is only 40 feet wide as you enter it for the first like 60 70 feet with two false fronts on uh, false sides on either side and the pinnable area is about 15 feet wide so you've got to thread the needle when that but the hardest pin on that hole is in the front of the front third of the green but when you start looking at the slopes and how they just go dead into the bunkers and all the drainage goes right into the bunkers here, which is, that's, in architecture, is considered a no-no because you don't want the water going into it. Here, it's it's actually a big part of the fee, which, again, Chicago Golf Club. Core Crenshaw do it quite often. Gil Hans, Tom Doak, Mike DeVries drain water into some of the bunkers. And you can do it when you have sandier sites. If you have heavier soils, it would not work at all. Well, we have time for... Uh a couple questions. Uh, does anybody want to pitch a question at Dana on Arcadia or any of his courses? Dana, I'm, I'm curious in Vietnam, mm-hmm. the money for the courses there, is that private equity? Is it uh, resort money that's that's putting in these courses? Where's the it's money there, coming There's from? a couple. There's uh, some money coming in from South, a lot of money coming in from South Korea, Japan, and China. And then the Vietnamese themselves are developing a lot of it as well. So I would say probably two-thirds of it is Vietnamese money, and the rest of it is coming from, primarily from those other Asian countries. You know, they're, they're, what they do is they really are building a – again, I would tell everybody to go there. Take your, and take your wife or girlfriend because they have some of the greatest hotels on the planet Earth built right out on the coastline in rocks like places in america you'd never get a permit to build and and they now have real there's seven there's seven or eight pretty good golf courses there right now two or three of them that are really good 
so there's enough good quality golf to go see and uh so they're they're getting there and they're just trying to get it where they can start to sell the real estate to foreign because when they can start legalize legally sell the property to you know to the chinese and the koreans and the japanese it's just going to keep growing because they they're they, and the reason they go there is because they have such good winter times i mean the winters in vietnam compared to other than the very southern tip of china you know japan and um uh, South Korea, it's just way too cold, and two thirds of uh, China is too cold. So that's why they're building it for tourism, and they're basically trying to compete with Thailand for for golf tourism, and they're doing a good job of it too. Mm. And so I, it's twelve months a year. Golf? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's but now they have a rainy season, which you want to you want to make sure you schedule your trips around the rain, and it varies a little from north to south when that is. So you want to research when you do a trip. Because you do not want to go in the rainy season because it can rain like you have never seen in your life. I remember seeing some movie about Vietnam about that. So, I mean, I, I, it was raining a lot. They had a, they had a storm a year ago, December. So, And the superintendent there, his name is Adam Calver. And Adam was at um, out, out in northeastern Canada, the Core Crenshaw, Cabot Cliffs. Mm-hmm. And he was in charge of both of those courses, and he went to, it's called Laguna Lang in Hue, which is the old provincial capital of Vietnam, and my project butts right up to it. So I got to know Adam. I knew him, actually, before that, he was at Bali National in Bali, Indonesia, is where I met him. But so he's gone around, but he moved there, and he sent me the rainfall data from this one storm event they had in five days, and they had over three and a half feet of rain. And he said, he, he called, he, he said, it's biblical, Dana. <laughs> exactly, he, goes, I've ne- he goes, I need an ark and we need to get out. That's how much rain he had. Three and a half feet of rain in five days. And he said it was a, just a, the heaviest downpour you've ever saw for, three day, for five days. It just never quit raining. So trust me, stay away during the rainy season. Any other questions? All right. Well, let's let's all have a cocktail, Dana. Uh, thank you oh, thank for you for, uh, for fielding these questions. Uh, terrific architect, terrific guy. Appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.